Hey folks, Brian here. Before we get started, I just want to ask those who are listening who have not done so to please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. And to those who have already done so, thank you very much, and please tell a friend. Now then, on with the show. episode number 25 of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. Uh, let's see, since last we met, uh, not too much else has been going on. Of course, the quarantine continues. All the arcades in my area are shut down. And uh, the governor extended the uh, stay-at-home quarantine until, what was it, May 15th now? Because we are now at, um, what, um, April 27th, and so now we have to go through this for another two and a half weeks or so. Hopefully within the next month or two, the curve is flattened enough where they'll start slowly restarting society. (laughs) There's no other way to put it, really. So, um... Uh, when I'm not working, I'm basically at home helping take care of my son and playing some games. Uh, I got back into Elite Dangerous recently. Um, and as I'm going through the area I'm in now, I realize that I messed up. <laughs> I took a journey, what is it, 23,000 light years away from the home system where myself and a group of other people uh, call home and um, I decided to take a trip all the way out to pretty much the other side of the galaxy and once I got there I realized I messed up (laughs) so at some point I'm gonna have to go back and then I gotta go back out here and we'll just see how that goes um let's see I haven't been doing too much else Uh, I've been trying to get back into some emulation but with this whole situation I'm finding it really hard to just do the things that I like doing and um yeah it's really rough (laughs) everybody is upset and depressed and whatnot um I'm taking long walks with my son to kind of you know, chill out and calm him down and get some of his energy out. Because as you would think, a five-year-old that's home from school since the middle of March 
and he's not going back to school till at the very least the beginning of September. Yeah, he's sort of locked into his own thing, and he's, you know, hyperactive, and, you know, it's really hard to deal with him sometimes, but that's just how it is. I'm pretty sure there are parents all over this country and around the world that are dealing with the same things. So anyway, enough of that. Um, no emails or voicemails this time through. So once again, um, I'm going to keep harping on this until you people start sending me stuff to discuss. So if you have any sort of inkling about uh, contacting the show with stories, suggestions, games of your own that you would love to have covered, and so on and so forth, just get a hold of me at arcadeaddictbrian, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Also, there is a voicemail number for the show. That number is 734-743-2433. Also, social media is up and running, where <laughs> a lot of people are uh, frequenting these days from what I'm seeing. Um, on Facebook, you just search uh, Confessions of an Arcade Addict. It'll take you right to the page. By the way, um, I am now up over 350 likes on that page. And I was looking at the numbers on Anchor, and they're fairly decent. So to everyone that's listening and has continued to listen, thank you very much. Um, let's see. We also have um, Instagram. That is Arcade Addict Brian, all one word. Um, face, or excuse me, Twitter is uh, Arcade Addict underscore B. And Tumblr is Tumblr.com slash blog slash Confessions of an Arcade Addict. So you have multiple ways of getting hold of the show. So come on, you know, let me hear what you got to say. As long as you can do it in a respectful manner, I'm willing to go to whatever uh, depth you want to. <laughs> I don't realize I'm opening up a can of worms, but, you know, hey, so be it. All right. So without any further ado, let's get on with this show. I've got a lot to talk about and very little time to do it. So let's get right to it. Let's get into Arcade Rundown. Good morning, Mr. Phelps. Your mission, Jim, should you decide to accept it, is to make Stefan believe Thompson's information. As always, should you or any of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. This state will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, Jim. Hey folks, Brian here, live on location as it were, in Farmington, Michigan, and this is Arcade Rundown. I just got done messing around at the 1UP Arcade here in downtown Farmington. And I have to say, it's a pretty nice place. I'm going to put down some notes once I get done with this recording about my honest review of the place. And of course, it will be an arcade review in a future episode. Um, it's a nice place. Um, the upstairs part is where the arcade bar is. That place has 20 machines and it's a really good mix of newer games and classic games. I mean, it had everything in there from deluxe Space Invaders all the way up to I want to say, well, they had a golden tee, but I didn't stop to check what 
version it was, but I think it was a newer version. Excuse me. I'm still, my body's still processing the dinner I just threw in it. Uh, speaking of that, they have a burger bar downstairs, which is a nice little thing because they don't serve any food in the arcade, barcade upstairs. Um, I think their policy is if you order drinks, they give you tokens to play the games. And the games also run on quarters. That's a really nice touch. That gets bonus points for me. Um, of course, with it being a Friday night, you know, the place was pretty packed. You know, service was a little slow, but that's to be expected. I mean, that, that barcade, I mean, the barcade, the burger bar was jammed with people. I barely was able to get a spot at the bar. Fortunately, four people were leaving just as I was walking in. So I was able to get myself a little seat at the bar, nice strawberry lemonade and a nice burger. Uh, the place, it's, it is a little on the expensive side. I mean, it was $18 for me. But yeah, the place was a little on the expensive side, but then again, it's to be expected. It's Farmington, Michigan. I'm not gonna say it's like hoity-toity, but it certainly is, at the very least, middle class, heading towards the upper range of middle class. So that's to be expected. Um. Like I said, the, the games themselves were nice. I didn't partake of the alcoholic games, or alcoholic games, geez, edit, Brian. You would think that I was under the influence of alcohol was the way I'm doing this segment. Yeah, it was a nice game. It was a nice selection of games. I didn't participate, I mean, I didn't partake in as many games. I had just gone there straight from work, so I was a little on the tired side. So I just decided just to have a burger, play a couple, play a game or two, and then go home because I've got things to do at home. Um, yeah, they had, every, like I said, everything, they had games ranging pretty much right across the spectrum from Deluxe Space Invaders, which I think, yeah, that was the oldest game because that came out in 79. And from Deluxe Space Invaders all the way to... Uh, Golden Tee Golf. They had Galaga. They had Galaga 88. They had Moon Patrol. You know, it was a nice mix of games for, you know, for a little barcade. That's pretty good. And they also had a, uh, they also had a Nintendo Switch at the bar, which is another nice touch because you could just sit there, have a drink or two and play uh, play as many games you want. I think when I left, there was a couple playing Mario Kart 8. This place would be really nice to take a date if she's into video games, that is. Um, the burger bar downstairs, like I said, it was packed, but it was really nice. Plenty of TVs. The food was good. I mean, the burger I had was excellent. I mean, I was... I won't say surprised, but I certainly was pleased that the burger that I had was such good quality. I mean, good meat and cooked medium like I wanted with plenty of toppings and Swiss cheese and bacon. <laughs> word, you know, word to the wise. Any 
burger joint that has Swiss cheese to be had on a burger gets an extra plus in my view because quite honestly in too many places I've been a lot of a lot of uh, burger joints want to get cute so they start doing the quote-unquote upper tier cheeses instead of just doing the basics then going from there I mean to me the basics should be American cheese cheddar cheese Swiss cheese and then you just go from there if you want to do Havarti if you want to do brie or anything like that to differentiate yourself from other burger joints then by all means go for it but at least pay homage to the basics let's see um yeah the place is really nice um the Galaga game that I played of course I played it I just couldn't resist um all of their games were two quarters or two tokens you know that sticks in my craw a little bit but I can kind of understand it so I'll let it I'll let it be I mean of course it's going to be um it's going to dock them a couple of points when it comes to value uh in uh when it comes time for me to review this place in arcade review um but the fact that they were playing um Modern rock and ska versions of tunes from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. That was a plus. I found myself singing along to the rendition of Crazy For You by Madonna. It was kind of funny. But uh, I can't remember what band does that, but it was really nice. It was really cool. Nice little spot. Right smack dab in the middle of downtown Farmington on the corner of Farmington Road and Grand River Avenue. Um, fairly easy to get to, um, parking is a little bit of a premium, especially if there's something going on in, you know, in town, and I saw more than one couple walking around with lawn chairs, so that told me that, yeah, indeed there was something going on downtown, or at least close to it, but I was able to find a parking spot and just walk to the barcade from there. But yeah, all in all, definite positive experience. Like I said, it's a little bit expensive, but considering where it is, I'm not exactly surprised. So yeah, definitely something to somewhere to go if you're in this area and you know you're into video games and maybe your significant others into video games, this is a nice place to go have a meal down at the burger bar, walk up the stairs into the barcade, have a couple drinks, have a little fun before going where you're going to go. So yeah, definite positive experience. I'll be going into more detail when I get around to doing uh, the arcade review for this place. So now I am on my way to the grocery store to get groceries, and then I'm going home and hopefully have a nice, relaxing weekend. So until next time, this is Brian saying good gaming, have fun out there, au revoir. And now, are you experienced? I'm too old for this. 
Hiding in front seats like a teenager. Oh, baby, I think I'm getting too old for this stuff. I'm getting too old for this. Listen, you was born too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. You're getting too old for this. Lying wet arse to my heather chasing other men's cattle. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Maybe you're getting too old for this. What do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this shit. I'm not too old for this shit. You will not. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. like you believe. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this shit. I'm not going to buy a hemorrhoid cookie. We're not too old for this shit. Are you experienced? Missile Command. <laughs> yeah, this one. You know, yeah, this was one of the major arcade hits that came to my home arcade back in 1980. And just from... The way people were reacting to it, yeah, it it was plain to see that it was a major, major hit in the arcades. Um, but yeah, let me do a little read from Wikipedia and we'll see where we go from there. Missile Command is a 1980 arcade game developed and published by Atari Incorporated and licensed to Sega for European release. It was designed by Dave Thurer who also designed Atari vector graphics game Tempest from the same year. The Atari 2600 port of Missile Command by Rob Phillips sold over 2.5 million copies. <laughs> I own one of them, or at least I used to. Uh, let's see. The player's six cities are being attacked by an endless hail of ballistic missiles, some of them uh, which split like multiple independent uh, re-entry vehicles or MIRVs. Uh, new weapons are introduced in later levels, smart bombs that can evade a less-than-perfectly targeted missile, and bomber planes and satellites that fly across the screen, launching missiles of their own. <clears throat> As a regional commander of three anti-missile batteries, the player must defend six cities in their zone from being destroyed. The game is played by moving a crosshair across the sky background via a trackball and pressing one of three buttons to launch a counter-missile from the appropriate battery. Counter-missiles explode upon reaching the crosshair, leaving a fireball that persists for several seconds and destroys any enemy, mis enemy missiles that enter it. There are three batteries, each with ten missiles. A missile battery becomes useless when all its missiles are fired, or if the battery is destroyed by enemy fire. The missile of the central battery fly to their targets at much greater speed. Only this, these missiles can effectively kill a smart bomb at a distance. I tend to disagree with that. I've played the game enough where I've killed smart bombs with slower missiles. I will say it's much harder to do, though. Okay, do continue. Uh, the game is staged as a series of levels of increasing difficulty. Each level contains a set number of incoming enemy weapons. The weapons attack the six cities as well as the missile batteries. Being struck by enemy weapons re results in the destruction of the city or missile battery. Enemy weapons are only able to destroy three cities during one wep one level. A level ends when all enemy weaponry is destroyed or reaches its target. A player who runs out of missiles no longer has control over the remainder of the level. At the conclusion of the level, the player receives bonus points for any remaining cities, which is 50, 50 points times the scoring level. Um, or unused missiles, which is 5 points times scoring level, uh, 1 to 6. Uh, between levels, missile batteries are rebuilt and replenished. Destroyed cities are rebuilt only at set point levels, usually per 8,000 8, to 12,000 points. Um, I think the standard is 10,000. I've seen it as high as 15,000. Um, I think I've seen it as low as 5,000, I think. Um, but yeah, it, it can vary greatly depending on the difficulty level. 
Uh, the game inevitably ends when all six cities are destroyed unless the player manages to score enough points to earn a bonus city before the end of the level. Like most early arcade games, there is no way to win the game. The game keeps going with ever faster and more prolific incoming missiles. The game then is just a contest to see how long the player can survive. On conclusion of the game, the screen displays the end rather than game over, signifying that in the end, all is lost. There is no winner. This conclusion is skipped, however, if the player makes the high score list and the game prompts the player's player to enter his, in his or her initials. The game features an interesting bug. Upon scoring 810,000 points and per 1 million points thereafter, a large number of cities are awarded. 176 cities plus the continuing accrual of bonus cities, and it is possible to carry on playing for several hours. At some stage, the speed of the missiles in uh, increases greatly for a few screens. On the 255th and 256th yellow screens, known as the 0x stages, the scoring increases by 256, 256 times the base value. For good players, these two uh, 0x stages could earn over a million points. This enabled them to reach a score of approximately 2,800,000, although only six-digit scores were shown, so it would only display 800,000. And at this point, the accelerated rate would suddenly cease, and the game would restart at its original slow speed and return to the first stage, but with the score and any safe cities retained. In this way, it was possible to play the game for hours on end. When the game was originally designed, the six cities were meant to represent the six cities in California. Eureka, San Francisco, San Luis Obispo, Santa Barbara, Los Angeles, and San Diego. Later in development, the names of the cities varied depending on the game level being played, but eventually city names were removed completely. While programming Missile Command, the lead programmer, Dave Thur, suffered from nightmare of these cities being destroyed by a nuclear blast. Yeah, I understand that. When I first started playing this game, the game gave me some nightmares too. Uh, to continue... Uh, Missile Command was ported to the Atari 2600 in 1981. The game's instruction manual describes a war between two planets, Zardon, which is the defending player, and Krytal. The original arcade game contains no reference to these worlds. On level 13, if the player uses all of his or her missiles without scoring any points, at the end of the game, the city on the right will turn into RF, the initials of the programmer Rob Fulop. This Easter egg is originally documented in Atari Age, Volume 1, Issue 2, and in a letter to the editor by Joseph Nickisher, and is the second one publicly acknowledged by Atari. Uh, Missile Command was released uh, for the Atari 8-bit family in 1981 in an identical version for the Atari 5200 in 1982. The same Atari 8-bit port was later used in the 1987 Atari XCGS as a built-in game that boots up if there isn't a cartridge or keyboard in, in the console. Missile Command is considered one of the great classic video games from the golden age of arcade games. Again, that is from 1978 to 1983. Uh, the game is also interesting in its manifestation of the Cold War's effects on popular culture in that the game features an implementation of the National Missile Defense and parallels real-life nuclear war. Uh, let's see, in late 1980, a two-player sequel, Missile Command 2, was field-tested but never released, although at least one prototype appeared in an arcade in Santa Clara, Cal California. This game was similar to the original except... Each player had their own set of cities and missile batteries, and the players could cooperate to save each other's cities from the onslaught. 
1992, Atari developed a prototype of an arcade game called Arcade Classics for their 20th anniversary, which included Missile Command 2 and Super Centipede. In 1981, an enhancement kit was made by General Computer Corporation to convert Missile Command into Super Missile Attack. This made the game even harder and added a UFO to the player's enemies. And that is true. I've seen Super Missile Attack in two places. I can't remember the second one, but the first one was in uh, Washington, D.C. in an arcade downtown in 1982. That's when I saw it. Um, in 1982, Atari released a game called Liberator, which was seen by some as being a sequel to Missile Command with the situation essentially reversed. In Liberator, the player is the one attacking the planetary bases from orbit. So yeah, uh, this is a Missile Command, of course, has been uh, cloned, and of course there's tons of uh, popular culture references. Um, there's some uh, references in TV shows. Of course, the big one was sort of the uh, 1991 film Terminator 2 Judgment Day, where John, Carter's John Connor is playing the game in an arcade. And uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High uh, had the Missile Command the end screen to help illustrate the, the end of the movie. So yeah, it's just uh, one of the best games of all time. Okay, like I said, I was there when this game hit my home arcade in 1980. Um, I've talked about it in several episode, previous episodes. Um, I walked in the arcade one day and there was this machine on the uh, north side of the arcade and there was a crowd of like seven or eight people around it. And so I was like, hmm, I wonder what's going on here. So I make my way over there and I see this freaky game where missiles are attacking cities and there's huge trackball and three buttons and, you know, you're basically intercepting enemy missiles with your own missiles and then there are bombers and killer satellites coming out of the sides of the screen and you know it's just craziness and like i said that that machine had quarters on the bezel the quarters on the uh place where the screen joins with the control panel you know and i just knew that day i wasn't going to be able to play it so I remember I left the uh, our, left the mall later that day. I'd say probably about four o'clock, five o'clock in the afternoon, and it's summertime, so it's really hot. And I said, to my, I just thought, well, I'm gonna go down to uh, Bolarama, and uh, I'm just gonna chill out there. Maybe grab something to drink from the snack bar. You know, maybe play a couple games in the game room before you know I finish the walk home. I go in there and it's a repeat of the same thing, except there's like four, three or four guys there. They're all regulars in, in the bowling alley. And also they're, you know, in the arcade. I mean, like, uh, like, uh, Steve Swit and like, uh, Darren Besetschek and a couple other guys. And they're all there and they're all playing missile command. Cause they got a machine as well. I was, I was surprised they got a machine because <laughs> that, that game was brand spanking new. So, like I said, um, it was at least a couple of weeks before I could actually play it because all the rich kids who, you know, basically spend like $10, $20 in the arcade 
they were hogging the machine and the regulars at Bolarama were doing the same thing. But, you know, I just watch him play. Um, every once in a while, I would try to sneak in a game at the Italian restaurant just up the corridor from the arcade because they had a cocktail version in there. But, of course, in 1980, I'm only 11 years old. And, um, you know, if I'm in a place with a bar without an adult accompanying me, of course, they're going to shoo me out of there. So, yeah. Every once in a while, I would just, um, as I was walking the mall, I was walking away from the arcade or heading towards the arcade, I'd sort of make a little side trek over there, and usually somebody was playing it. And, it, you know, I thought the cocktail was really cool because, yeah, people would have, like, their beers or their wine or their mixed drinks, like, right there on the cocktail while they're playing Missile Command. It was pretty cool. Um, when I finally did start playing it, uh, it was great. It was a great game. Um, learning how to control that big trackball was the first order of business. Then learning how to conserve your missiles. Then learning how to survive wave after wave of missiles, killer satellites, bombers, and smart missiles. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, for a while it was tough for me, but I learned by watching the better game players and I got passable at the game. I could get up, I could do like, what, four or five screens into um the 6x screens you know i can't even remember the color schemes aside from when you first get to the first 6x screen it's this really light blue screen and all the accoutrements are red you know and stuff like that so um this is definitely one of the all-time classics i couldn't agree more with what uh was written in wikipedia for sure okay so Let's immediately pivot to time for some strategy. Okay, the secret to getting good at Missile Command is precision. You have to be precise with your movements, precise with your missile fire, and to conserve as many missiles as you can. Uh, take out when, you, when the bombers and killer satellites come out, kill them quickly, because they can seriously ruin, ruin your day, especially on later waves. Um, when you first see them in uh, the second screen, or the, yeah, the second screen of the 1X, uh, they're up high in the sky. They're near the top of the screen at first, but as you progress through the screens, they start coming out at lower and lower areas until they're like just above your missile bases in your cities, which gives you like zero um, reaction time to deal with them because, you know, they'll come out, they'll be out for maybe like one or two seconds, then they'll start dropping missiles. Um, and then they start moving across the screen quickly. So, yeah, it's tough. Um, let's see. Uh, in the early stages, uh, you want to see where the missile flight paths intersect and use uh, an ABM to take them both out. Um, like the Wikipedia said, some missiles will MERV, 
which means they'll split off into multiple missiles as few as like two and as many as like oh my god i think like seven or eight <laughs> yeah when that happens usually yeah that's tough to deal with um it behooves you to intercept them as soon as possible uh starting on wave three um not wave three that's more like wave uh seven it's in the 3X. It's the second screen on 3X. That's when you start seeing smart missiles coming down. Uh, precision is the key. Uh, you want to conserve as many missiles from the center base as you can because those missiles are your best defense to destroying smart missiles. It's not impossible to destroy them with the slower missiles, but it is really, really hard. Um, okay, starting on the 4X... You start, we'll start having to use the wall method to destroy in incoming missiles because they'll simply be moving too fast for you to intercept them inter individually. Um, I do remember when I first was getting to know Mark and he was playing Missile Command, he could actually move that cursor around fast enough to he could intercept missiles going into the 4X, I think, but when it came to the 5X, you had to use the wall method because they're just moving way too fast. Um, when you first start doing it, you pick a point about halfway up the screen, maybe a bit, little bit lower. You move to one side of the screen, and once you start seeing the missiles come flying down, you move the quick the cursor quickly across the screen, firing missiles from your side missile base bases to form a wall of explosions as the, as the missiles will run into and destroy themselves. Um, once you get to 5x and 6x, and further on from there. Uh, everything is going to start moving faster and your wall will have to be set up lower and lower on the screen to give yourself the best chance to survive. Um, another tactic is to let all of your cities to be destroyed save one on levels five and six and further on and defend that city against all comers. Um, much less ground to cover, but the downside of that is that once missile or smart bomb gets through and destroys the city, game over. Um, I mean, I've seen... Oh, let's see. I've seen scores of, oh, God, what? 200,000, 300,000. I'm trying to remember my highest score on the Arcade Missile Command. It was like, what, 150,000, somewhere in there. Um, on the Atari 2600 version, which is much easier to play, although it can be really hard, too, if you... Um, use the difficulty switches and you and you go to certain games um highest score i ever got on that missile command was like what six hundred eighty thousand or something like that you know i can't remember exactly what the score is but it's a score that you know i've never tried to uh beat <laughs> um i missile command was one of the first games i got for the 2600 so yeah i got a really really rapid head start on that <laughs> you know but yeah um it like i said classic game um you know it's not easy to learn and it's even more difficult to master but if you're game for it you know yeah um let's see uh the arcade in brighton has a missile command machine uh, uh pinball pete's has a missile command uh uh, centipede millipede machine um let's see there's another place i saw a missile command machine oh that's right it was at um at uh what's the name um off world arcade in downtown detroit i believe 
I think they have a missile command machine. I can't remember 100%. I think they do. But like I said, wonderful game. Not easy to learn. Even more difficult to master. And yeah, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> okay. Um, any thoughts on missile command? Uh, your personal experiences with the game? Uh, anything of those? Anything of that nature? By all means, get a hold of me, arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com. Okay, moving on from there, let's go into home systems. There's no place like home. Hey you guys, I'm going home. Bro, this is not a game, Max. Screw you guys, I'm going home. Shall we play a game? Love to. Screw you guys, I'm going home. Clear the path! I'm going home! Okay, Home Systems, the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, or the SNES, if you will. Okay, let's just go right into it. Let's go right into uh, Wikipedia once again. Uh, the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, also known as the Super NES or Super Nintendo, is a 16-bit home video game console developed by Nintendo that was released in 1990 in Japan and South Korea and 1991 in North America. 1992 in Europe and Australasia, and 1993 in South America. Uh, in Japan, the system is called the Super Famicom. In South Korea, it is known as the Super Comboy and was distributed by Hyundai Electronics. The system was released in Brazil on August 30th, 1993 by Playtronic. Although East version is essentially the same, several forms of regional lockout prevented the different cartridges from being compatible with one another. Uh, the Super NES is Nintendo's second programmable home console following the N Nintendo Entertainment System. The console was introduced, introduced uh, advanced graphic and, so and sound capabilities compared with the other systems at the time. The system was designed to accommodate the ongoing development of a variety of enhancement chips integrated in game cartridges to be competitive into the next generation. The SNES was a global success, becoming the best-selling console of the 16-bit era after launching relatively late and facing intense competition for Sega's Genesis console in North America and Europe. Overlapping the NES's 61.9 million unit sales, the SNES remained popular well into the 32-bit era, with 49.1 million units sold worldwide by the time it was discontinued in 2003. It continues to be popular among collectors and retro gamers with new homebrew games and Nintendo's emulated re-releases such as on the Virtual Console, the Super NES Classic Edition, and Nintendo Switch Online. To compete with the popular family computer in Japan, the NEC Home Electronics lost, launched the PC Engine in 1987 and Sega followed suit with the Mega Drive in 1988. The two platforms were later launched in North America in 1989 as the TurboGrafx-16 and the Sega Genesis, respectfully. Both of the systems were built on 16-bit architectures and offered improved graphics and sound over the 8-bit NES. However, it took several years for Sega's system to become successful. Nintendo executives were in no rush to design a new system, but they reconsidered when they began to see their dominance in the market slipping. Designed by Masayuki Orimura, the designer of the original Famicom, the Super Famicom was released in Japan on Wednesday, November 21st, 1990 for 25,000 yen, and was it was an instant success. Of course it was. Uh, Nintendo's initial shipment of 300,000 units sold out within hours, 
and the resulting social disturbance led the Japanese government the government to ask video game manufacturers to schedule future com console releases on weekends. The system's release also gained the attention of the Yakuza, leading to a decision to ship the devices at night to avoid robbery. Wow. <laughs> wow, that's pretty crazy. Uh, let's see. With the Super Famicom quickly outselling its rivals, Nintendo reasserted itself as the leader of the Japanese console market. Nintendo's success was partially due to the retention of its most of most of its key third-party developers, including Capcom, Konami, Tecmo, Square, Koei, and Enix, which was smart <laughs> for future for future reasons. Uh, Nintendo released the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, a redesigned version of the Super Famicom, in North America for a, a price of uh, $199 US, the equivalent of $373.54 in 2019 money. It began shipping in limited quantities on August 23, 1991, with an official nationwide release date of September 9, 1991. <laughs> that, that jibes almost immediately with one of my story times, which I will get into. Um, the SNES was released in the United Kingdom and Ireland in April 1992 for £150 sterling, equivalent of 312 0.7 pounds sterling in 2019, with a German release following a few weeks later. Most of the PAL region versions of the console used Japanese Super Famicom design, except for labeling and the length of the joypad leads. The Playtronic Super NES in Brazil, although PAL-M, uses the North American design. Both NES and SNES were released in Brazil in 1993 by Playtronic, a joint venture between the toy company Estrella and consumer electronics company Gradiente. The SNES and Super Famicom launched with few games, but these games were well received in the marketplace. In Japan, only two games were initially available, Super Mario World and F-Zero. A third game, Bambuzal, was released during launch week. In North America, Super Mario World launched as a bundle with the console, other launch games included uh, F-Zero, Pilot Wings, both of which demonstrated the console's Mode 7 pseudo-3D rendering capability, SimCity, and Gradius 3. Which makes more sense because, yeah, I remember um, when the Nintendo kiosk came about in the summer of or 1990, summer of 1990, and going all into 1991 when the SNES first came out. Yeah, I remember those were the games that were to be had. Okay, a uh, little thing about the console wars. The rivalry between Nintendo and Sega resulted in what has been described as one of the most notable console wars in video gaming history, in which Sega positioned the Genesis as the cool console with games aimed at older audiences and aggressive advertisements that occasionally attacked the competition. Nintendo, however, scored an early public relations advantage by securing the first console conversion of Capcom's arcade classic Street Fighter II for the SNES, which took more than a year to make the transition to the Genesis, which is true. Uh, though the Genesis had a two-year lead of launch time, a much larger library of games at a lower price point. It only represented an estimated 60% of the American 16-bit console market in June 1992, and neither console could maintain a, definitive, maintain a definitive lead for several years. 
Donkey Kong Country is said to have helped establish the SNES's market prominence in the latter years of the 16-bit generation and for a time maintain against the PlayStation and Saturn. According to Nintendo, the company had sold more than 20 million SNES units in the U.S. Uh, and according to tw a 2014 Wedbush Securities report based on NPD sales data, the SNES outsold the Genesis in the U.S. market. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that because, of course, the Sega came out with the Genesis to counteract the, the NES. And because of that, you know, they, of course, had uh, tons of TV ads and, you know, the most popular and most well-known being Sega does what Nintendo don't, <laughs> which I thought was pretty, pretty nasty. And they had an advantage for a couple of years. Then the SNES came out and, yeah, everybody immediately started shifting in that direction. All right. My personal experiences with this system are wide and varied. It started just before I was working in the working at the Nintendo kiosk when the SNES first came out. I was playing Gradius 3, Super Contra, and Super Tennis with uh, the managers Anthony and Dave. We were more or less addicted to playing against each other in Super Tennis, but I was pretty much top dog at that game. Uh, when I got the job at the kiosk in October of 91, I was selling systems to people that were Christmas shopping. Um, I played games over friends' houses who had them, but I did not own a SNES until 1993 when I bought one after I had moved to Florida. Unfortunately, my money situation was really bad at the time, so I had to hock it in order to be able to eat for the next week or so. Uh, I got reacquainted with it quickly enough when my roommate and I started living together. Uh, we would play fighting games, shooters... Um, and especially RPGs, and man, those were some good times. Um, this was an iconic game system with legendary games like its counterpart, which we'll, we will talk about in the, in the next segment of Home Systems, the Genesis. I did the SNES first because, well, I probably should have did the Genesis first, but you know, I said, you know what, we did the NES last time, let's just do the SNES this time, and then we'll go to the Genesis. So yeah, that will be the next... Uh, install installment of uh, home systems the genesis okay um any thoughts about the super nintendo just let me know drop me a line let me know what you know um there are plenty of gamers out there who have this console there are even more that have it in emulation so yeah if you've got any thoughts you know let me know arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com all right and finally let's go on the road so Let's jump in the car and let's take a ride. Hey folks, Brian here. Another seg segment of On the Road. I just left the arcade in Brighton and I'm on my way home. And man, is it freaking cold out. My car's external temperature sensor is saying it's five degrees outside. 
and that's probably being generous. Um, I had a lot of fun, and I kind of needed to kind of kick my feet up a little bit, you know, kick back, and just go and do some fun things. This last month has been rather hellish for me. Um, I probably will have talked about it by the time this gets on a podcast, but I lost my job on December 17th. Or excuse me, I'm sorry. Let's let's go back to the beginning. I lost my job on December 19th. Um, I left the job that I had on the 11th. And... I took a new job and I ended up getting fired for reasons I'm not even going to go into it because all it does is raise my blood pressure um so yeah the last month has been really really rough uh keeping the bills paid and keeping food in the house has been uh, a challenge to say the least I mean I'm just glad that I got a loan to pay off a couple of credit cards because those credit cards are the ones that are keeping uh, things afloat right now. Um, I do have a job interview coming up on Wednesday, so hopefully by the time you guys listen to this, I'll be have been gainfully employed for a while. Um, so I haven't had the chance... And because I've been feeling kind of down and kind of stressed, I hadn't had the chance or the desire really to go to the arcade in Brighton. Um, they are still rocking it. Um, they took a bunch of the games on the ground floor and moved them over to the west side wall and put in a bunch more pinball machines. I want to say they've got like 25 pinball machines now. I mean, they're pre- it's pretty serious what's going on with them as far as pinball goes. Um, they have the newest machine, uh, the Beatles. They just got it. I saw it on their Facebook page. Um, I saw Jack Danger um, playing it and demoing it at uh, Stern headquarters. I want to say it was sometime last month, and so they're still, they're still kicking butt. I mean, the place is just as good as ever. Um, I put up a bunch of high scores, I'm going to put them on um, the Instagram account as soon as I get home. Um, You'll probably see them long before you hear about this, but there it is. Let's see, what else is going on? Um, Yeah, I put up a bunch of high scores. I straight nine the Galaga, but I messed up. I got rammed by one particular uh, enemy instead of being shot. I mean, it still counts as a straight nine, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, A younger guy was watching me play, and, you know, he was just, he was kind of, he was kind of impressed. I'm like, you know, he's like, I said, I said to him, dude, I've been playing this game since it came out in 81. <laughs> you know, um, I guess, well, when I'm clean shaven, apparently I don't look as old as I am. I don't look my, my age of 50 years old. I think I look probably in my thirties or even 
early 40s or something, but even then. Um, I broke my high score on um, that hyperspeed Miss Pac-Man, if only by about, what, 10,000 points <laughs> because I messed up. Um, let's see, what else? The turbo was working, even though there's something up with the uh, circuit board because some of the sprites for the oncoming vehicles aren't, they're basically like white vertical uh, blocks uh, extending upwards out of the road. But yeah, I got the high score on that. I think I got like 15,000, which is good considering I haven't played uh, Turbo in any kind of seriousness since probably the middle 80s. When was, la when was the last time I saw it? Um, let's see, what else? Um, uh, played Bosconian, did okay there. Oh, that's right. I got my all-time high score on uh, Robotron. Was it? I think it's either 891 or 901,000. But, yeah, I mean, that, I only played it twice, which to me is more impressive. Usually I have to kind of warm up and kind of ramp myself up to play a game like that, but I found myself kind of in the zone in the middle of the game and then just towards the end, you know, yeah, if you're not moving in a certain direction or immediately upon starting from where you lose a life, um, yeah, you get killed within like a few seconds. You can't even take like an, a second or two to, um, assess the situation you're in, but I'm not complaining. I mean, if I got close to a million points, I'm very happy with that. Um, let's see, what else did I play? Oh, that's right, I got my all-time high score on Star Wars, a million five. Uh, they have two Star Wars machines now. Um, I think the one that I played, because the other one was occupied, the other one I still have my score of like a million two on it which is actually pretty good. Um, but my score of a million five, it was just, it was the same difficulty as the one next to it, but instead of getting one shield back when you destroy the Death Star, you get three. And that makes a, a lot of, di a massive difference. And because of that, I was able to kind of fake my way through a couple of Death Star runs when I couldn't remember what the uh, pattern was as to the um, the walkways or the walls, because some of them only have like, you know, four holes you can fly the X-Wing through. Some of them only have one, and I kind of, you know, faked my way through it. I mean, once I got past wave seven, you know, yeah, I was just flying by the seat of my pants, but even so, a million five is nothing to sneeze at. Unfortunately, somebody got top score with a million seven. Well, that's all right. I'll take second place. Um, let's see. Got, what, 35,000 on elevator action, which was a, which a passable score. Um, usually, you know, I think that's about average for me. Um, anything extraordinary is 50,000 and up. Um, let's see. What else did I play? Um... I was, oh, that's right, I got my all-time high score on Gorf. I think I got, like, what, 35,000 or 38,000? It's going to be on the Instagram, so I'll look at the pictures when I get home. 
And I also got my all-time high score on Tron. I think I got like 47,000, which is actually pretty good. I mean, short of these guys who can set world records on Tron, you know, anything above 30,000 points is well above average. Um, let's see, what else is doing? Um, oh, that was pretty much it. I mean, it playing Galaga and straight nining it kind of took all of my uh, attention. But at the same time, it's like, it is what it is. You know, I'm cool with it. Oh, look at that. It's a full moon. <laughs> How about that? Mm, that might explain why I was doing so well tonight. Um, I'm probably not going to go back to the arcade until I have gainful employment, even if it only takes me um, a small amount of gas and $10 on a Sunday to play as long as I like. But, um, yeah, it's just one of those things where it, it, things have been a little bit stressful around the house and I just needed, you know, a little bit of me time. So that's what I did. Um, let's see. So, yeah, that's basically the reason why I decided to uh, put uh, advertisements on the show because... Uh, I really want to be able to do this podcast for a long, as long a time as I can, at least a year, maybe two. Um, so that's the reason why I decided to do that. Um, anything that can help me get um, better um, apps and better... Um, equipment to record the podcast, I'm all for. I mean, I'm doing this off of my cell phone uh, with a free uh, voice recorder app. And it does pretty well. The problem is, is that I have to really, really uh, do a whole bunch of things in editing to get the voice levels to a respectable uh, volume. And it's a bit of a it's a bit of a trial actually, but you know I'm doing the best I can, and we'll just have to see how it all turns out. Um, let's see. Not too much else going on beside that. I'm hoping once I get uh, my new, you know, get a, you know get myself a good job and get myself in a little bit better of a uh, a place, I'm gonna start. Uh, going to uh, barcades in the greater Detroit area, um, you know, just to have, you know, just to get out, number one, number two, to get to new places, and, you know, I'm going to review them on the podcast, and, you know, just, you know, just to kind of keep things going as far as the show goes. Um so that is something I need to do some research on because I think there are three barcades in downtown Detroit. And from there, um, I'm going to start looking at other places in the greater Detroit metro area. I mean, I've been to Marvelous, uh, excuse me, Marvin's Marvelous Machines, which is a novelty 
place slash arcade in uh, Farmington Hills. I've been there. I've only been there once, but you know, considering I was on a date, <laughs> you know, considering I was on a date, you know, I didn't pay too much attention to everything going on. I mean, I could do a review if I really wanted to, but you know, the memories aren't exactly 100% accurate. So I can just probably go there another time and just see what they've got. Um, they may have changed the machines. They may not, they may not have, but anyway, um, what else? Uh, No, I think I've covered everything, believe it or not. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the show is going to continue on, you know, gainfully employed or not, as long as I have internet and as long as I have, you know, a functioning cell phone. Yeah, I will be still doing episodes because it's just something to kind of take my mind off of my situation. I put up episode 7 uh, earlier this week. I'm going to be working on episode 8 probably next week. I'll probably put that out. And then I'm probably going to start uh, just doing episodes once a week or once every other week. And then just put them out like two or three weeks later. I'm trying to do this every two weeks, but sometimes... Uh, Sometimes circumstances don't allow for me to just sit down and uh, do a podcast. Um, but, you know, I do the best I can, and it's starting to gain a little bit of traction, you know, at least to the point where, you know, I don't think I'm just yelling out into cyberspace and nobody's hearing me. So... Uh, for those who are listening and you like what you hear, like I keep saying, tell a friend, uh, especially, you know, you know, any gamers out there and let them and just let them know that, Hey, here's another arcade, uh, podcast, but it's a little bit, uh, it's done from a, a little bit of a different perspective. Um, I've listened to a bunch of different arcade and video game podcasts, you know, the first two that come to mind are the Retroist and um, Confessions of an Art. Excuse me, Diary of an Arcade Employee. Um, those two, uh, Vic Sage and Retroist, they are the direct uh, inspiration for this podcast. You know, and I just wanted to do it a little different. God only knows I have stories about arcades. Uh, the people that I've befriended and frequented and uh, the places I've gone, the things I've done and, and things like that. So, you know, I'm just sharing uh, my life experiences with you and I'm glad that you're on this trip with me. And hopefully we can keep it going and it'll turn into something. Who knows? So, let's see. Yeah, one of the things I need to do is, aside from the Detroit area, I want to see if there's anything um, of note down in the Toledo area and also down in um, 
or excuse me, out by um, uh, Kalamazoo, and maybe even if I have the money and I have the means to go out to Grand Rapids. I know there are a couple of places on Grand Rapids. I just haven't discovered them yet. Um, and probably on my way out to Grand Rapids, I'm going to probably stop in Lansing and do the Pinball Pete's uh, main headquarters in uh, East Lansing. You know, just to see what they've got and do a little bit of a review there. Uh, let's see what else. I think that's kind of it. So I'm still about three miles away from home, driving down US 23. Thank goodness the roads are dry as a bone. You know, last thing I need is to hit some black ice and wreck the rental car I'm driving. That would really suck. So I'm going to just call it here. So until next time, this is Brian signing off, saying good gaming, have fun out there. Au revoir. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. All music has been provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at Incompetech.com. You can contact the show by email at arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com, or you can call and leave a voicemail at 734-743-2433. Until next time, you have been listening to the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. See you then.